Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? It's, it's gone. They only usually last 24 hours. Some people have migraines that last three days. Yeah. Do you take Imitrex? Well, okay. I used to take Imitrex, but it did this thing where Imitrex is a funny drug. So have you taken it? No. Okay. So it has a side effect of it um, tingles, it tightens and tingles your chest and your jaw. So you kind of feel like you're having a heart attack. Um, so, oh, that's but, not you don't, good. but you don't have a headache. <laughs> you just have something, a, a different physical symptom to obsess about. One time I took Ambien oh, and it made me feel like I was tripping. I I was lay, I just was, I wasn't sleeping. I was just laying on the couch being like, oh my God, did I take acid? acid? I right. don't think I did. It was from this bottle of Ambien. Okay. I have the craziest Ambien story. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. All right. So my old boss, Norm, used to take Ambien. He was an insomniac. Um, oh, my God. Okay. So one day, there's two There's two stories. Um, he was of the people that would do um, night eating on Ambien. So Ambien's known for night oh, eating. Yeah. So I would come and we would work at his house sometimes. And I would come over in the morning, literally he'd still be asleep because he'd finally fall asleep for the Ambien at like 2 AM. There would be wrappers of every <laughs> kind, yogurts, um, granola bars, um, pasta, like crazy amounts. And I'd be like, Oh my God, again. But like they, apparently one of the things that the Ambien too, is you, you're not obviously really aware that you're doing it, but you also don't apparently pick up after yourself. Because I had to pick up everything. So that's the first story. The second story is I once. Wait, hang on one second. Is do you eat because like, do you, do you know what the function is? What's the mechanism that makes you eat? So there's some kind of, um, some, some side effect of the drug is intense hunger and night eating. It's just crazy. It's a crazy drug. So yeah, that's the specific side effect is that. Okay. So is, is like, um, yeah. Increased appetite. Okay. So the other story is one day I walk in and, and Norm, Norm is on the couch instead of the bed because he just couldn't sleep. And they tell you to switch, um, switch location. I don't know. Yeah. Look, I don't know. And because he was an insomniac, he wore these intense earplugs that were made of wax. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. So I walk in, he's eating the wax earplugs. <gasps> And I'm like, like, are... like in the middle of the night or it was the... like he was still asleep it was maybe like he was like half asleep it was maybe like 7 a.m he's and we're supposed to like start getting to work you know and yeah. he's eating this giant wax oh ear. My and I said god. Norm what are you doing I woke him up and he's like oh my god I had a dream I was eating <laughs> I was eating um um sweet and sour chicken and I <laughs> Or sour chicken, that's <laughs> the case maybe. And I said, you were eating your your wax silicone 
He was, they were big silicone. Oh my God. I said, stop. He was literally eating it. I don't know how oh, much he had eaten. So, I, I would go off of ambient. If, I mean, there's got to be better ways to get to sleep than that. I mean, that's I would crazy. Just, yeah. Her- heroin sounds better. So you, your job was to go to his house and get him up and get him ready for work. Well, like, like he was uh, Eddie Vedder. <laughs> right. Like some rock star who needed so, rousing. Right. right exactly. <laughs> So he, we would, I don't know what would happen. There would be times when like, I would go there. Yeah. Basically the answer to your question is yes. But also like, I think I had to pick up the dog and I took the dog. If Norm had meetings away from the office or something, I don't know. I was over there every day. So I, I, yeah, it was a real, it was a real enmeshed situation. So the job of being an assistant is basically just being completely at the beck and call of that person in whatever way they that is correct i picked out paint colors i helped he was somewhere i helped with the redecoration of the whole house um i uh it was crazy it was basically like being married to you're you're basically married to your boss and um I did really, yeah, it was a real, real intense. Well, that sheds a lot of light on. So like one of the things I've been wondering about in the last, whatever, six months is because it's only been since then that I discovered how many studio executives are women. And then it's so weird to me that there's this big disparity in, you know, just the general treatment of women, which I attribute to hazing but it makes sense that it's would start with the assistant level right because if you you get up the ladder one of the ways you can get up the ladder is by being an assistant correct excuse me and if you get mistreated then you're probably going to mistreat your and it just perpetuates the stupid culture it's so true it is so true it was it was interesting it was like i think it's got so supposedly it's gotten better in terms of like Okay, this is how they say it's gotten better. So it used to just be um, your email was this. And I worked at the beginning of emails and Saturn didn't even have their own emails. We just used Gmail. But um, your your name would just be assist at. Oh, right, right. right. um, Go lightly assistant at. You wouldn't even have your own email. And so like they they touted this as a big improvement that like now assistants have their own email. I'm like, oh, my God. Come on. That is the most, uh, what do you call it? Like performative. Uh, that's, I'm sure they're all padded. I'm sure that took a long time to come to consensus about. And I'm sure everybody's just been patting themselves on the back for it ever since. So, but did you, okay. So like, is it true that most of the people who go the assistant path are doing it because they want to be an exec? Right. And I think they thought I was crazy. I had no, at that time, I had no desire, none, zero. They tried to get me at the beginning to read scripts and to do coverage. I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. I I, I just want to sit here and do office duties and make coffee. I have no, no, no desire. I literally had come from the Bodhi tree where it was like the opposite of, of any kind of corporate, you know, I was from a book I went 
from a mystical bookstore to this Hollywood environment. And I, I could care less. They were like, Jen, don't you, do you want to sit in on this meeting? And I'd be like, do I have to? Oh my God. You, I have to. And they, they were like, what is, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had thought I wanted to be an actor. And then once I kept, came to LA, I was like, no way. And so, um, I, I did arts and crafts in the conference room. Like that was what I did. <laughs> Wait, you, you decided you didn't want to be an actor as soon as you moved to LA? Yeah. So oh. I got to LA. I had a job. Okay. So I had a job before I moved there. I, I hung out, like I've said up before on this podcast, I hung out at a, a bookstore called Transitions Book Place on North and Clybourne and in Chicago and said, Hey, I'm moving to LA. Does anything cool like this exist? And they're like, yeah, it's called the Bodhi Tree. I literally called the Bodhi Tree and hounded the owners and were like, I'm moving there. I want a job there. And they're like, this is like the weirdest thing we've ever. Okay. But then they gave, they got me, I got a job. And when I got there, I got so immersed in the culture of the Bodhi tree. And also I just, I just, I think after we had survived the theater school, right. I was like, Oh, I don't want to, I loved the atmosphere. I had found my people. Everyone was really it, it, nice and the guys were cute. And I just was like, this is where I belong. I mean, I was making seven twenty-five an hour, so that was crazy. But um, yeah. When you look back on it, do you think that you were sabotaging yourself? I mean, because I, like you'd kill, uh, not you wouldn't kill to be an assistant now, but you'd kill to be where you'd be if you had, or maybe you, maybe that's not true. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think I would. I think I would. Well, no, but so my assistant. Uh, my executive dreams or working as a studio head or a showrunner or whatever has really just been in the last since you and I have started working together. So like last year or whatever. So, um, so I, the Bodhi tree is literally some of my best and greatest memories. And I, the feeling I had was every, the acceptance feeling there was phenomenal. Like it was literally like, come as you are. So it was like the opposite of the theater school. Right. So I was like, Oh my gosh. So if I had felt that way in the environment of Hollywood, that would have been fantastic. And maybe some people do, I don't know. Probably guys do young guys must feel that way in Hollywood, I suppose. But I just was literally my move to work for Nicolas Cage had almost nothing to do with the acting with my dreams of any kind of acting. It was like, make more money. The office was really near our house. And I thought it was cool to work for a movie star. I did. I thought that was kind of cool. People thought that was cool. So that was fun. But like I had, I, I didn't have any trajectory. Hmm. And so wanted- you didn't, you didn't also, um, did you did you harbor a thought that n- knowing Nick was going to help you get acting work? No, it, it was so strange. I did think it would get me into cool parties and stuff like that. Like I, I, I but I, they made it very clear. So one of the things on on my resume, obviously, is that I went to the theater school. I had to take that off. So 
So they wanted no actors. And so I, I, they made it very clear Norm and um, his, at the time, his uh, assistant, assistant, uh, not his personal assistant, um, made it clear that like, that was something that was really frowned upon because people thought they were going to try to get ahead or get roles. And I was like, fine, I'll take it off. I don't care. So that wasn't it. But I wish, you know what I wish now? I wish now I had embraced learning more about the actual business. So that, that is something my regret, if I had a regret, it would be that I didn't do more coverage because I started doing it towards the end and I didn't pay more attention, but literally I was like making, um, like little collages in the conference room. Like I, I didn't know what was going on. So well, it's, it's, it's really true what they say about youth being wasted on the young. I mean, I have, so, I have also s- squandered so many opportunities, but for me, the reason I asked you if you think it was like self-sabotage is because that's kind of how I think of some of the bad choices I made. Like, and when I say bad choice, I mean, not taking advantage of an opportunity that's right in front of me. And it's, and, and, and if I can think back to the time, it's always like, um, a lot of it has to do with all, I, I think I'll get rejected in that. So I'd rather just reject it. And then some of it is just like, I just have been through so many phases of my life where I'm like, okay, well, this is who I am now. And so this is who I am. So therefore here's the things that fit. And then here's the things that don't fit. And, and, you know, and and if I'm this person and then this other thing comes my way, I have to say no to it because I'm not that, you know, it's just like, I would never, if somebody told me that being a bartender, you know, a block from my house right now would, would be a way to meet somebody who I I would be a bartender. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be like, I don't think so. That's not really the way I want to get to my success. Right. So, so exactly. And I think you, you, I think you may have a level of understanding about your process that I did not like now you, I can't even, it's like, it's still so cloudy to me. I don't, what I, what I'm saying is I think probably in the grand scheme of things, I was sabotaging myself, but it was um, definitely not that it was only unintentional. It was also so unconscious, so unconscious. And even now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah. But I, I also just wanted to have low stress and a good, and a good life. And I couldn't, I couldn't see that, that, that doing the work that nor cause you know, there's my story about Norm and Nick and the crying that I did about the, his emails that I've returned. So, okay. I don't think so. The, this is a great little antidote about taking things personally. So one of the things, right. One of the an- things I would. An- anecdote. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anecdote. It's an antidote. It's a great, it's a a meristocracy. Um, So, so, okay. So I would, yeah. Antic, how do you say it? Anecdote? Anecdote. Anecdote. Okay. A great anecdote. Okay. So I would sit with Norm and read, we would read his emails because, and then I would take notes. There was no, it was, it was 2000, right? 2001. So these, some of these emails, Gina, were like, you're a terrible person for not saying yes to our project. You're going to be so sorry. You're going to, and I would start to cry. They weren't even to me. 
And Norm would be like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'd be like, Norm, this person said, like, you're the worst thing they've ever seen. And he's like, Jen, I would have a heart attack by 8.32 a.m. if I took any of this as seriously as you're taking this. And they're not even to you. And I thought, oh, my God. That was my first glimpse at someone who was able to let things roll off their back for the sake of their own mental and physical well-being, when the yeah. things that were being directed at them, Gina, were horrible. What, but so <clears throat> I guess I'm puzzling about why does it get to that level of calling somebody a horrible person that they've passed on a project? Because people are crazy. I mean, like, literally, like, there were no... So, so Norm, I, I guess the way Hollywood works maybe then and maybe still now is that like norm wouldn't know someone or they would send him a, a a script right and he would feel obligated or genuinely interested in reading it right um and so and so he would read it and then the then the person for whatever reason would feel strung along or um or in their head made up that norm was more in norm and nick were more interested than they were and then flip out because they had put all their eggs in the Nicolas Cage basket and he passed all the time on stuff. So it, people would get crazy or just random people. So they really just did it to themselves. They, they worked themselves into a tizzy and then blamed Norm, Norm. about it. Gina, I literally would like cry and Norm would be like, oh my God, you can't take these this personally. Also, they're not to you. And I'm like, but I have to read them and they're they're saying such bad things about you and Nick. And he's like, oh my God. So it was a great lesson in like, no, no. But I, I this sort of, I mean, I do think that you were maybe not even self-sabotaging. Actually, I think you were protecting yourself from, because it sounds like that's, I mean, so many people describe their experience as being so horrible like that. And, and I, and I always think like the only reason that people can get away with this is just because you'll never stop having people who want to do this for their profession. So there's always you know what I mean? Like if, 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 if somebody decides to um, get on their high horse about being treated with respect, you know, they can just be kicked to the curb for the next person who's willing to be treated like garbage. But you, you would have been, if you had had some success at that age when you weren't ready for it, you would have been a sad story, I think, of somebody who something, you know, something terrible happened to you, became a drug addict or you spun out in some other kind of way which has happened to so uh, particularly women, so many women who every once in a while you'd be like, whatever happened to that person? And if you ever do any Googling about it, it's like, Oh yeah. They're they're a casualty, a casualty of the Hollywood war. Yeah. So, so, um, Hey, let me run this by you. It's by you. I'm totally obsessed with, the idea of stage fright, we know this because I suffer from stage. I've had bouts of stage fright. And so I'm obsessed with TED Talks and YouTubes about people talking about stage fright now. Really? And there are so many. If you if you have any public speaking fears or, or stage fright fears, go on YouTube. It is. But then you find it like anything else. 
there's conflicting ideas, right? But, and so I'm like, okay, what is, by all these experts, you know, usually they're scientists or they're uh, public speakers, experts, or they're, you know, this one woman. So the common thing I found, and maybe see how you feel is about this, is the common ground that I've heard like four or five times from different people. So that's the common thing is that it comes from, Obviously, I knew this fight or flight back in the day when we were being eaten by everything. But it literally is you are separated from the pack when it's just you on stage, right? And the eyes looking at you are like hungry lions, like literally wow. like your prey. Wow. And I was like, that is the feeling. It is the feeling. I, that is the thing. And I just wanted to say, because we've talked about this before, like it is so that it is the feeling of. The, there's two steps, one being separated from your pack. So it's it's just you, which makes you vulnerable, right? Even if there's other people on stage, when it's your turn, all eyes are on you. And then the second part is being stared at by eyes. And in the forest, jungle, savanna, wherever there's prey and, you know, prey and predators, when you are spotted alone, and the lion or the bigger animal or whoever the fe- fearful thing is, is just staring at you, your brain goes caca cuckoo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was like, that is it. That is it. Now, everyone has different ways of getting, quote, over it, used to it. They have all kinds of techniques. But I think I was fascinated by that. I was like, that is fascinating. And I'm and I actually think there's there's something to extrapolate about that, which is. The people who never have stage fright, the Donald Trumps of the world who who live to be have everybody looking at them, they must think of themselves as the predators. I mean, and they are, right? Because so, so like there's so there's like a direct correlation between how afraid you feel to be, you know, stared at by your peers and how much malignant narcissism you have. I think you're right. And I think it's like, right. I all right. And I always saw that as, oh, this is a terrible thing. And the the techniques to quote, get over it are like, literally this one woman is like, you have to become the lion. You have to add more lion energy into your thing. And I'm like, I don't know if I believe that because I get getting through if you want to run a major bank and you have to talk to and you want to make a million dollars and you, okay, yes. But like, I'm not sure becoming the lion is really the route I want to go. Like, I, I'm not sure, but this other lady was like, you just have to get used to it. And she was saying, I'm afraid right now. And I'm up here. I I'm more towards that because I think she the one who was like you literally walk forward put your weight forward and become like more aggressive on stage when you're feeling I, I don't know but anyway the point is there's all kinds of freaking techniques and I'm like I don't know which what what's gonna work you you, you I think you're drawn to the radical genuine uh, phase which or you know approach which is like yeah I'm scared and the minute you acknowledge that and, and hear, hear murmurings in the crowd of like, yeah, I would be too, or whatever it is. So wait, but do you get it? Like, did you get it yesterday with your audition? Yes, but I felt like, you know what? 
I have to do a tremendous amount of self-talk, which is, yes, I totally felt it. I felt like, yep, this here it is. I'm afraid. Um, but I know these, I've, I know these lines. There's not very many of them. I've gone over them and over them and over them, but it, it is a lot of work and it is, um, it did not go away. I did not. And also in the moment I, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to become a lion now. Right. Yeah. How, who the hell has time for that when you're panicking? You just have to breathe. I think breath for me is really important, regardless of what happens, whether I, you know, screw it up or not. Like breathing is really important, but it's also like, you're right. Like just acknowledging like the last time I was on a big set was in Santa, uh, in, uh, Santa Fe. And, and the star asked me, this guy asked me, um, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm petrified. And he was like, Oh, Okay. And it, it, you're right. It went down like 50%. I was like, I'm petrified. Yeah. I was on a plane 10 minutes ago. I don't know what's happening. And he was laughing. I said, you know, I'm not, I don't know what's happening. And he was like, you know, and he got it. Yeah. And, and he, then he could, and then you may, and then the other thing is like making yourself the, the whole thing behind, I mean, not the whole thing, but part of what is behind the stage fright is like, I'm, and this fits in with the prey, I'm vulnerable. I'm making myself vulnerable in this situation. So like the fastest way to disarm that is to own it. Like for you to be the, the worst thing to do is to pretend like you oh, don't feel scared. And vulnerable. That's like, and, and, and we could go back, you know, you and I to talking about that's as a kid, right? You, 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 what I wanted was to say, I'm really scared. This is crazy. Whatever this is. It could be a million things, but instead I pretended it, it got me through, but it did not go well in the long run for my psyche. Mm. So I think that that's, I'm going for a, a long run psyche shift versus I'm going to be a lion in this moment and barrel through. I'm like, I don't know. That sounds yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, and, and I also know now why people take copious amounts of drugs of like downer, of like podcast we have john jenkins who was our teacher fiends our teacher our movement music teacher acting teacher he was um very i mean his name comes up in not all but almost all of our episodes with by the way i feel i have to say we are not limiting this podcast to people who went to our theater school. That's just the people that we've had the opportunity to interview so far. So yes. if, if you're out there wondering, like, is this only going to be about DePaul? No, no, it's not. And if you uh, have ties to people who went to... <laughs> Hit us up. Hit us up. Great schools. DM us. Okay. No, but John Jenkins was so influential because <clears throat> movement to music was such a unique thing and people had such a like intense relationship with it. They either got it or they didn't get it. And, um, and he was, he is like such a character, such a wonderful character. He's a, such a wonderful character and like kind of a gentleman around town. <laughs> so please yeah. Yeah. enjoy yeah. our interview with John Jenkins. That's People have, idea. she's come up a lot. You come up a lot in our interviews, as I does Betsy. Not, I hope not, I hope not, not in some nasty fashion. No, not in a nasty fashion. <laughs> mostly, mostly just in awe of um, mm. the creativity that happened in your classes. 
I would say. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing is everybody brings up movement to music because I, I'm sure to a person, it was the first time we were all doing something like that. I mean, yeah. some of us, it was the first time we were doing any of those things, but for yeah. most of us, if not all of us, we hadn't done movement to music before. And Lee Kirk, we had Lee Kirk on recently <laughs> and he said, I'll admit to one thing, I never got movement music. I never <laughs> understood it. And, and, and it's what, one of the things about it is it's somewhat enigmatic and it's the kind of thing that must be very hard to teach because the only thing it seems like you can say to somebody doing it is you're on the right path or you're not. Yeah. You know, it was, it, you know, it was a, it was a kind of an improv. It was, it certainly was. And the, the, the sources of stimulus instead of ideas that you, you had in, in a normal improv class, problems of a structure, you had the music and the music was the source of the, of the, of the impulse to, to do something, you know? So that was the, that was the main difference. And the, the, the thing was, is that it was a, it was a body activity. You really had to use your body to, you know, to figure it out. I remember you, I remember you, Gina, when you began to, you began to get it, you know, it was, it's really interesting to see when it starts to, to stick. I know, I know what to do. I have, I have freedom to do all of this stuff that's coming into me, you know? Yeah. Did, did you, did you create, did, did you invent? <laughs> Not really. It was Jim Osterhoff who, who, who did it. And Jim said that he had got the idea from some other guy that he had worked with out in, Lewis and Clark, and so when I came to the school, uh, Jim was Jim used it as um, as a, as a kind of a warm up exercise for his for his acting classes, and for a period of time, um, Jim David Abcolly and I taught a um, taught a team class with the BFA fours. This was in the in the late eighties, and and movement to music was a was a was a key component of that. Of that of that class and and then later on Jim and I um, uh, put together an ensemble we, we auditioned for it just people in the school MFA and the BFA program and we did a production of Movement to Music this wow. was in 1990 and we did it at the school we also took it out and we, we put it in a in an old blues club that was up there on Belmont Avenue up near the Belmont L stop at least at one point you know, How it was cool. fun. So, um, uh, in a way, I took it over from Jim. In a in a way, Jim always continued to use it as a, you know, as a warm up in his acting classes. But then I started to use it as a standalone class. So that was the evolution of it. Well, it it was so surprising. I mean, fr from from day one to know that this is a class you're going to be taking and to have nothing but questions about what it is yeah. to the end, after having had the experience, it was just such a complete epiphany. And it must have been for ev everybody. I mean, every single person who went through it uh, had a very I'm, I'm strong relationship. I beg to differ with you. I mean, let's take Lee Kirk as an example. <laughs> <laughs> some people, some people, some people didn't get it at all. It was not their cup of tea, you know. So, but I thought I think that for them, for the for the most part, of you know, students students got to it and could begin to 
find the opening up of your imagination and your presence on the stage because it was really about presence, the presence of the music, the presence of the partner, the presence of your own action, embodying all of the stuff and negotiating, you know, some action in the, in the space. Mm -hmm. you know, it was my it was my my favorite class to teach. Was it? I, you could tell. I mean, we could tell. Yeah. You loved it. I think the thing is, like, we get at least I can speak for myself. Like, as young actors and and young humans, like wanting to do it right, and yeah. that that didn't really play into movement no. to music. It was like no. if you tried to get it right, you weren't doing it at all. <laughs> no, no, right? no. It was you know it, figuring out how to open up your own imagination as, as that, as a, as a primary doorway for it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Were you always a very physical actor? You know, that was my, that was my, that was my thing. You know, um, I had, uh, I had come up studying a bunch of different physical techniques. And, and in fact, I, I moved to Chicago to uh, study a thing called the Alexander Technique. And um, I had moved there from, I'd worked for seven, eight years as a member of the Children's Theater Company in, uh, in Minneapolis after, after going to the graduate school at the University of Minnesota. So I started my, my professional career really in Minneapolis. Mm. But I was there seven or eight years. I was primarily an actor and a director, although I taught a little bit at that point. Um, but I wanted to do something else. And so I moved to Chicago. I, I retired. I, I quit the, the the Children's Theater Company, and I moved to, to Chicago to, uh, to study this thing called the Alexander Technique. And while I was there, then I ran into a, a strange little theater company called the San Quentin Drama Workshop. Yes. And the San Quentin Drama Workshop uh, was run by an ex-con by the name of uh, Rick Clucci. And Clucci was friends with Samuel Beckett. And, and so uh, he ends up getting the whole group, the workshop, to move to Berlin to work with Beckett. So I had a chance to to do that. And we did that for three different projects over a period oh. of about five years. Uh, so that was a that was a great experience. So I, so I lived in he... Berlin for a while. I lived in England for a while. I did postgraduate work in the Alexander Technique. And then I came back to Chicago in the around night in the late night in late 1980. And so I started to uh, I was doing some acting in town and I was uh, teaching privately and, and then the opportunity to teach at the theater school came up or the Goodman School at that point. And so I, uh, I, I ended up taking it. You know? wow. That's how it happened. I was just reading about that San Quentin drama workshop uh, because I, I hadn't known that. One of the things that Boz and I just talked about earlier today was we're, we're chagrined that we really didn't think of our professors as people who had professional careers before <laughs> becoming our teachers. So actually I can say for myself, I was rather incurious about what you might have done. So it was eye-opening to, to read more about your history and working with, with Beckett. But I just have one question. The guy, what's, your, what's his name? Clucci? Richard Clucci, yeah. He, he had been an inmate at San Quentin? Yes, he was in San Quentin for 13 years. 13 years. And he, he's, he, he was in the, the play of, of uh, Waiting for Godot? Here's, let me give you a little, a little history of that, if you don't mind. Okay. Sure, please. Um, back in 
I'm trying to think when this was. Um, it was 1955 or 1957. There was a there was a, an acting ensemble in um, in San Francisco called the San Francisco Actors Workshop, and um, they uh, they were doing a, a touring production of um, of Waiting for Godot, and they uh, they made a proposal to bring it in and do it for the prisoners in San Quentin, and it was accepted. And so they came, came in and they did this production and it had a tremendous effect on the, on the, um, on the inmates. There's a, there's a famous piece of theater criticism written about it by Martin Eslin about uh, uh, Gago at, at San Quentin. And what happened was that the, the prisoners identified with the, with the play tremendously and that they knew about waiting for sure. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that it was said that the, you know that that the uh, the language of the play even became a part of the private language of the prison at, at, at that point. Main thing about that was, is that some uh, some of the prisoners went to the warden, and they were inspired by this, and they asked if they could set up a, a theater program within San Quentin. There was a, it was a liberal warden, and and he agreed, and so Rick Clucci became interested in this and became the head of that program in San Quentin. And it was mainly in his work uh, with this workshop that I think that he was able to, to finally get his sentence commuted and he was eligible for parole. He had been in with uh, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Oh, wow. So he, came, he, he got out in 67, I think, or 68. And so when he did, then he took the, the work of the workshop um, outside and in the early days it was all people who had been had been prisoners or ex-prisoners but by the time i joined it in um, 1976 that had changed a lot of people who hadn't done time you know uh, ended up working with, with him in the workshop so that uh, along the way uh, beckett hears about him he meets beckett in a tour in in uh, france beckett likes him and sort of takes him under his wing and and uh, and then begins begins to work with him and the, and the rest of us in the workshop. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, but did you when and how did you learn Alexander technique? Because I saw that you you were the consultant for Craps Last Tape using yeah, Alexander yeah. technique. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had uh, uh, I had moved to Chicago to study it. I had started uh, studying it with a teacher in Minneapolis who would come in from time to time. And he set up a, a teacher's training program in Chicago in, in 1975. So I moved to uh, Chicago to, to take that course. So I was, uh, I was just finishing that when, when uh, we ended up in Berlin doing the, doing the Craps Last Tape. And so I helped, uh, I helped uh, Kluge a little bit to figure out how to, to, uh, you know, to negotiate this in a way that was um, relaxed and expressive and and huh. physically free well it's weird because that play is i mean i saw i saw it performed once the, who is the guy who played the father on fraser john john mahoney uh, mahoney yeah he they, they there was a 
I remember there was a there was a festival in Chicago. I don't know, buckets of Beckett. Beckett. Yeah, yeah, show. yeah. That must have been it. Yeah. Actually, and, uh, I think it was in San Francisco that I. But it was uh, maybe that festival traveled. I don't know, but I. Yeah, I but, saw that. I saw that production with Mahoney as as well. Yeah. So he's. Uh, just sitting. He was just sitting. I mean, the production yeah. I saw, he was just sitting. So I'm really curious how you used movement with that. Let's say that's subtle. It was very. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> did we? This is. It was going to show my um, uh, my the amount of drinking I did in college. But did we do? <laughs> did we do Alexander technique at DePaul? I never did do it as a part of the. Okay as a part of the class what i did do was is that i would do private sessions with, That's right. with people on on request and and i think as time went on i did more and more of that i i think in the last last years i've been probably doing oh i don't know 10 12 lessons a week out outside wow. of the outside of the you know the the classroom the, the, the work that i had to do Patrice did it. I, I took Patrice. We did it in Patrice's class, or we learned. Yeah, something. and she she had the Feldenkrais. She was a Feldenkrais teacher, right? Oh right, and, she did. Uh, oh yeah, she did Feldenkrais. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fascinating stuff. So um, the other thing that I didn't realize until looking looking through your biography is that it seems like right in the middle of our tenure at the theater school, you did a film. A little earlier, earlier than that, Gina. Oh. This was in the this was in the late eighties. Oh, really? Because this is something yeah. that came out in nineteen ninety five. What? But that's that's a, I wonder what that is because the, <laughs> the film that I'm thinking the same the film that I'm thinking of, you know, was released in in um, oh. in 80, 86 or eighty seven. I think a film called Patty Rocks. Patty Rocks. Yeah. 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 No, but it's your IMDb says that you were in a movie in uh, nineteen ninety four. Five that was released what, in nineteen. The cutting, was, the cutting edge. No, you've got the wrong John Jenkins. John, wrong John Jenkins. It's it's mm. honestly it says it's the same John Jenkins. It's got your picture <laughs> on it, and it's the same John Jenkins who did Patty Rocks. They got you listed in that filmography. That's I funny. don't know okay. what this. I don't know what this. I don't know what this was unless it was some kind of, you know, unless I did something cutting edge. Is it about ice skating? <laughs> yes it is it's about yes, figure, figure skating it's about figure skating maybe were you the movement teacher like the no no I, this is completely this is complete bullshit you know okay everybody amazing. out there don't believe what you read don't on believe. imdb well take the i mean remember the the verse the verse from uh, i heard it through the grapevine believe half of what you see and none of what you hear you that's know, true that's don't that's believe it. anything um, but tell us about patty rocks um let, let me go back into the into the 70s when i was still at the the uh, Children's Theater Company, uh, my good friend there and colleague, uh, uh, an actor by the name of Chris Mulkey, and, and I, uh, we did a film called Loose Ends, okay? And it was about these two buddies. It was a, it was a, it was a road movie, a failed road movie. And um, Patty Rocks is the, in some ways the sequel to that, right? Which was done in 12 years later, okay? So, um, and, and that film, we, uh, it was the same two characters. It was, uh, you know, problems later on in life. Um, 
uh, Chris's wife at that time, Karen Landry, and I say at that time because Karen passed away a couple of years ago. Um, uh, we we wrote the we wrote the, the film as well. So we so we wrote and and, uh, and then starred in it. So that was the that was the that was the way that was the way it worked. We we improv the the script basically, and that's uh, that's what happened. Yeah. But did you keep acting? Um, I mean, have you have you kept up with acting throughout? You know, uh, I in the mid nineties uh, after after Nan and I got married, I just sort of I, I I I didn't try to do any acting at, at all for a while. In the in the mid nineties, I started to uh, I started to uh, to do some stuff. Remember, uh, I worked with Jim Jim Ostelhoff when we did Oleana at the. Oh. At the at the school, and I thought, well, I'll get back in the in the saddle again. I went over to Steppenwolf, and I and I uh, I did some understudying, understudied John Mahoney in a in a in a new play over there, and I was uh, just a, about to to really start to do more of this, and I came down with cancer. You remember, this was right after you guys left, and it was a uh, and it was a bad cancer. It was a uh, an oral cancer, and the surgery and everything was pretty brutal, and I, and I thought, well, I'm probably not going to do any acting again after that. Although I did come back and I did a, I did a new play um, at the Timeline Theater in 2008. I, um, uh, you know, I went over to do that, but that was that was about that was about it. I never did resurrect that acting career. Was that a play that Nick Bowling directed? No, okay. it was. Uh, it was um, it was a it was a new play by Brett Brett Nevue. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. It was a play called Harmless. Okay. Brett, uh, I like Brett's work. Very good. I do too. And, and yeah. I like Brett as a guy awfully mm -hmm. much too. He's a really he's a, he's a mensch. You know? So tell us about some of the plays that you directed at the theater school. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm trying to think. I must have done, you know, twenty to thirty plays. I mean, back in the back in the uh, back in the early days, the faculty had to do uh, at least two productions a year. Usually, that would consist of doing an intro, right, for one of the jobs, and then doing and then doing a, a main stage or a or a studio play. Um, the first play that I ever did there was a was a was a, a children's play that I adapted. Of the, of the doctor in spite of himself. We set it in a, in a, in a traveling Cajun, Cajun theater. We used Cajun, the Cajun dialects and, and, it was, and it was fun. We created the, the whole thing based on the, the structure of the, of the Moliere play. But then, you know, I did Wojciech, I did the Three Penny Opera, I did School for Scandal, did uh, 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 the Bourgeois Gentleman, um, uh, did uh, six degrees of, yes. of separation. That's why we right? were there. And, oh, that, and when you were there, I I, I directed that. Uh, and then um, I did Waiting for Gatto uh, in the 2003. Uh, I did a I did a couple of uh, of the new plays from the playwriting program in the latter part, and then in the towards the last part, of my, I I did did primarily children's stuff. I went back to doing children's uh, plays again, which is where I had started really. And 
in Minneapolis and did- What is uh, it about that that you love? What, what is it about children's theater that you love? I think that what it demands of, of, the, of, the, of the actors and the, all the artists involved in it is that, is that it needs to be particularly beautiful and clear. I mean, this may be the first time that, um, you know, the kids are seeing any theater. And so it, it needs to have, um, it needs to have a, an, an effect. It needs to have a, I feel a, a deep and a, a profound effect on them. I mean, adults, we can protect ourselves. We don't, <laughs> Right. We, we have a, you know, we have enough ways to filter and deal with all of this, but for the, you know, before a, before a, a, a child seeing a play for the, for the first time, this could be, this could be really important, you know. Oh, and absolutely. And so I always, I always thought, it, I always thought it was, I thought it was more important the way you did a children's play, than the way you did an adult play, for example. I yeah. wish, I wish it to Paul that there had been like th that I had been told that because there was this this sort of thing of like oh she was in a kids show and I really yeah. liked doing I was in three of them I think and I really loved them and yeah. I wish that we had said like it would be so great and maybe this is just my own thing of like saying no it's precious like children's yeah. theater is, is is really really important yeah. Yeah. Ooh. And, yeah. and they were packed houses every time every time you know yeah. yeah, you know, and and you and you saw what kind of an effect on it. I remember back when I was when I was working for the for the children's theater in in, in Minneapolis, and um, I would do the 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 post show talkbacks at that point, and it was um, it was really interesting to hear the the questions of the of the uh, of the of the kids who had come, and my favorite one was. Uh, I'm out on the. I'm out in my costume, and I've got the microphone, and I'm sitting in front of the set, and and, and somebody always asks, uh, "Do you live there? Do you live here?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, oh, I do. So and I said, yes. "Yeah, I do. I do." <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, testament to the power of children's theater is uh, we've had quite a number of guests who, when we ask them how they became involved in theater, when they first, you know, were enchanted by the idea, met very many people said, well, my school went to see this play or, you know, for some reason they had the occasion to see a play. And in fact, it, we talked to Larry Bates and he, he had no concept no framework no reference anything for theater but but some a group came to his school and he held on to that desire to yeah. to do that again for many years after yeah. that play so it is important yeah. i am um, my my wife nancy Bula jenkins um she talks about seeing um a traveling production of a of a shakespeare shakespeare play i believe it was um I believe it was Twelfth Night when she was, I don't know, ten or twelve years old, I guess, and and what a and that that was it was magical for her, and it, you know, and it and again it's that 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 early that early impression, that early contact with the theater that can be so important, you know, revelatory for uh, for somebody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
So one of the things that Boz and I are always trying to get a handle on, well, for one thing, we're often trying to remember things that, <laughs> about the theater school. Um, and it, it, it occurred to me in one of these conversations, I, I remembered that we did for our version of final exams were these performances that we did in yeah. the classroom where the, right. the, st the faculty would be there yeah. uh, taking notes for, for the evaluation. Right. I just wondered if you could demystify that a little bit for us. Um, you know, were, 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 was there sort of a thread being kept in the faculty ab about the students and who needed to work on what and did that inform? Yes, it, it was, you know, the, the, the scenes were, um, you know, well, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a chance to do some, you know, to do some work to show your stuff, but it was diagnostic, you know, so, uh, so we could look at what the students were doing and, and say, okay, this is, uh, you know, in, in acting, these things need to be, needs, needs, need to be, need to be worked on, you know, the students really not, um, um, really not contacting the circumstances uh, strongly enough. It's not getting embodied. The sensory work needs to be improved. You know, a student needs to look and listen better within the within the within the scene. And then from the movement, you know, from the movement point of view, what's happening with the body? You know, uh, you know, we're we getting tension. What do we need to do about that? And of course, then the, the 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 vocal notes that would voice and speech notes that would would come in. So it was absolutely diagnostic. What do we do next for for mm. the student becomes the becomes the thing coming out of those um, those sessions. You know. Yeah, I am. Um... That's, yeah, I mean, for us, I'll speak for myself, everything was sort of this huge mystery, you know? Mm, and so mm. it's it's so nice to go back and say, yeah, there was actually a diagnostic thing happening there versus, you know, in my head, because I am who I am, I'm picturing like just writing, this person sucks, period. <laughs> but that's not what was going on. But no, I, no, 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 no. I, I'm thrilled. I, I, I'm like, really want to also know, like you were on the panels for accepting students, right? In terms of watching auditions. Did you watch? Yes. yes. And then, you know, later on, once the, you know, once the invitation to return, the cut policy was eliminated, those auditions became, became uh, much more important. Um, I mean, we would we would end up going out and and, uh, and most for the most part the auditions happened within the school. We did do remotes as well, but we would we would audition. You know, I don't know, maybe uh, 800, 900 people wow. for uh, you know for a class of thirty two. Whoa! You know, so so how those so how the auditions uh, occurred became became much more much more um, um, organized and sophisticated, you know. Oh my God. And what, that's, what I, that's what I was doing primarily in the, you know, in the, in the latter years mm. of that. You know? what, what informed the group, the school's decision to end the cut program? There was a, I think it was um, basically the, the generation of teachers turning over the, the you know, it was a, it was a policy that you know that had the school had inherited from the Goodman School of Drama, and 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 I think as the you know as the uh, as the as the as the faculty retired and um, 
you know, new people came in, the, and we began to see also what other schools were doing is that it just didn't, this does not seem to be viable anymore to do it that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so we've, and I think it was a very good thing to do. Uh, I mean, I know, I mean, for the people who survived the theater school, who survived the cut policy, that was, uh, you know, that was a great achievement. But for those who didn't, that was a, that really burned, you know, that hurt. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of people, and for some people, it was really traumatic. And, and I don't know, to, to, um, to have a, someone take it that way is not a good, good thing to be yeah. involved, you know? I don't know how much time or if you've ever had much of an opportunity to talk to any of the people as adults who had been cut from the program, but now we've talked to quite a few. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, there, there are some people who are declining to speak to us in part because they felt the whole experience very traumatic, yeah, but the people yeah. who did speak to us, many of them felt, yes, it was painful, but it led to a bunch of really important changes that they feel really good about now. So I'm not, I'm not arguing yeah. in favor of the cut program. I'm just no, saying it. Yeah. No, I mean, I know that that's happened and, and, uh, you know, and some, you know, and some people who, you know, who were, who were cut had, have, ama- have had amazing careers. So, you know, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a snapshot, not of a, you know, of a, you know, a person's whole life or their fate, but what was happening at that point, how mature they were, what they were able to do. And some people were able to handle things better at that point than others, obviously, you know, but it, it wasn't predictive about what their whole career or life was going to be. Right. But some people, but some people took it very hard. And we knew that, you know, I, you know, we've, you know, had people who, you know, who would say to, you know, to uh, teachers, this ruined my whole life, you know, and that's, that's, that's hard to hear. Yeah, I bet. You know? Yeah, very right. painful. So, so the, the uh, I think that the the move to to eliminate it was good. It, it we had a much more uh, sophisticated um, uh, audition program. People would audition, and then there was a callback uh, mm-hmm. group that was then come in, and from that we would select the the uh, the uh, you know the the class. You know, and basically what we wanted to see was. Um, I mean, did the person have uh, a sort of individual talent and imagination? And then, then we would want to we would want to see if they could work with other people, you know, that thing. And then we wanted to see if they could, uh, you know, to adapt to some instruction. Can you can you do this with the scene? Are they were they teachable? You know, mm-hmm. that you know. So those those say three things: talent, able to work with others. Teachability became sort of the the, the three legged stool for the you know for the audition. Well, uh, t- teachability must be, must have been my my gu- guiding light because I have told the story that when I my I auditioned in San Francisco and the whole audition process I, I I it would it's as if I just walked into another planet I didn't know one single thing that anybody was talking about I had no frame of reference and it even was like now that I'm thinking of it, it was actually kind of scary um and when I walked out I said to my mother and my boyfriend had driven me and I said there's no way there's no way 
that they would ever ex I'm terrible <laughs> and then they ex so so it must have been that it must have been in the moment I could take direction yeah. oh yeah. or the fact that you had no real you were really not um clued into your talent right that's the other <laughs> that's the other <laughs> maybe they saw some well, talent Gina get a clue get a clue girl <laughs> I mean okay, but, okay, it, okay. But, but it's true that we talk to like every person almost every person we talk to who was a student says I left my audition thinking I, I there's no way they're taking me there's no way yeah. Yeah. um and 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 yet we we somehow got in so were you a part of that did you you said in your in your later part of your career at DePaul that you did you sit that you sat in on auditions and were really uh, uh, yeah I was I was on the I was on the callback team of for the auditions for the last oh oh I don't know uh, four or five years that I was uh, there at the at the at the school so we were the ones that fight? we did you fight with each other over students that you wanted and things like that um Yes, we to some extent. I mean, we would, we we would uh, uh, the the people on the on the callback team. It was usually somebody like Trudy and me. Usually only the two of us, and and we were pretty much in agreement about what 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 was uh, what was happening. We would film the we would film wow. the, the auditions too, so we could go back and oh. and look at look at it, you know, later on to make a make a final decision. That's my understanding, Jen, that, that now the, the preliminary round of the, uh, of the auditions are all done on, it's all done on video now. Wow, yeah. Yeah, and so from that, they, um, they, uh, they select the, 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 the uh, people for callbacks. And then I'm, I'm not sure, maybe they're bringing them all to the theater school to, to make the final decision. How many are being called back? I don't know. They, They've changed it quite a bit since yeah. I left, so so I don't know. So in, in, I know you left in uh, five years ago, but um, we so we know that they got rid of the cut system. We know that they're in a gorgeous new building. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what else can you tell us about the major changes? I mean, and I know faculty changes changed over, but you know, it's uh, um, it's I don't know many of the new. People. I mean, I know Patrice is still there. Um, you know, um, I I knew some of the people who I knew one of the persons who had come in to the movement program, Christina Flutie. Um, she had come in to um, to uh, when Julia Neary. You remember Julia? Yeah, Neary, she. Right? Julia Neary that was, was the saddest thing that she, ever. She played my sister in a play at Teatro Vista. She, Gina, she was this she? phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal actor and physical actor, yeah. and 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 she did puppetry. She was brilliant, and she passed yeah. away of cancer. Um, she and did. anyway, she 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 did she do movement to music too? Did she teach? She did. To music? Yeah. She did, and you know, and in fact, we would trade off a little bit when she had uh, come to the school and. Uh, Christina, Christina Flutie had come in to, um, to sub for uh, Julia when Julia was sick and couldn't teach the classes. And then after Julia had passed away, then uh, Christina won the position, to, you know, and so she's on the faculty. I know her. I know Patrice. Uh, I know Phil Timberlake, who's in the voice and speech department, but he wasn't there when you were, when you were there. Um, Phyllis is still there, of course. 
right? Um, uh, Lisa Portes came after you were there, right? So, so- um, It's so different. It is so, so different. And it's so different even after I've left, you know, so there's been a, you know, another four or five people who have come in that I don't really know. You know? How did you know it was time for you to, to stop? How did you know? Jen, I think that um, I wanted to, I wanted to get out when I felt I was still at the upper part of my game, you know? I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna stay too long at the fair. So I was feeling fine. I probably could have gone on for a, a few more years, but you know, it was, I was, I would come home, I'm more, more exhausted than I used to be, you know? The, you know, working all day and then going and rehearsing all night or rehearsing until, you know, 1030 at night. Oh. That was, that was getting to be, that was getting to be a little much for the old guy. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to leave while I still had half a brain. And, um, and yeah. so I, and so I did. And, you know, and they say, they say that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that progress in academia is made one retirement at a time. That's great. Or one thing they said in, in, British, in British politics, where there's death, there's hope. <laughs> that's hilarious well yeah and it's nice that you now get to enjoy with your wife life yeah. which is the whole point yeah. of working anyway which we sometimes forget i about. adore your wife she's oh, one of the people well that's good i'm glad and, and also she 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 was david mammoth's costume designer right for i mean yeah. for the early for the early stuff i mean she did the original uh glengarry glid ross and in Chicago and on Broadway and Speed the Plow, she did as well. And and she did his, uh, you know, he did his, she did his first movie. House you know? of Games or House Homicide? of Games, yeah, House, yeah, of, House games. of Games. And yeah. I remember when she costumed me, I was like, oh my gosh, this is David Mamet's costume. <laughs> oh my God. I was like more excited about that than anything yeah. else. I really yeah. adored her. Yeah. Oh, we have to have her on. We haven't yes. had a costume person on. I'll, nice. ask, I'll ask her if she'll do it. <gasps> That'd be great. I, I bet you'd love to do it. You said you wanted some anecdotes, so I've, yes. I've, yes. I've got um, I've got a couple for you. Okay, great. Um, they're they're uh, they're Bella Bella Itkin anecdotes. Yes, okay. yes. You know, and <laughs> Bella Bella was my girl. She was my she was my mentor. She was my guru while I was there, and I loved her. And and um, and you know we. Uh, uh, Bella didn't drive, and so we always had to end up taking her around. You know, John Bridges was a part of that that that, <laughs> that taxi fleet, as, as and I was too. Bella and I had the same birthday. We were both born on February seventeenth, so so we always we always celebrated that together. But um, we went to see a, a a production of a of a of a doll's house that was being done as a as a studio production, I'm not sure when it was. Do you remember Kevin Fox? Yes. All right, Kevin Fox was in it, right? And um, I can't remember who else. So we're sitting there in the watching this in one of the one of those one of the rooms, and um, and this this play, the tempo rhythm of this play is just awful, right? It's just <laughs> it is just dragging, schlepping along. And finally, there's a scene change, 
and then you know the next scene's supposed to start and it doesn't start and oh. it doesn't start and it doesn't start and it doesn't start and Bella says oh come on <laughs> <laughs> We have to do a Bella themed episode. Everybody's got a good Bella story. Here's my favorite one, though. Okay. All right. So, um, Lisa Portes directs the production of Hamlet, a very, very uh, experimental production of it. She divides it into two acts, and it's maybe the whole play is about two and a half hours long. So, I take Bella. And I get her in there. Bella's getting pretty creaky at this point. Help her down the, the steep aisle in the Ruskin Theater. We, we're getting about the third row. So we get in the, we, we get there and, and um, the play starts. And, and I swear, even before we get to, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, Bella's gone to sleep. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. So she sleeps through the, uh, sleeps through the entire first act. There's some applause. Bella wakes up. It's an intermission. I help her up the ramp. We go up. She gets a drink of water. Goes to the bathroom. Comes back down. We go down the ramp. We get back in the third. The second act starts. She goes to sleep within a minute. She sleeps through the entire play. Right. The act ends. The applause starts. She wakes up. She starts clapping. And she turns to me and she says, "She says, you know, that wasn't too bad." <laughs> <laughs> she had the world's most edifying nap yeah <laughs> well i figured that you know two and a half hours of hamlet was better than no sleep at all you know that's that right. was- <laughs> so true i can think of worse worse dreams yeah i love that i so, love that so, brilliant. so there you go that's what i've got for you that's great Aww. so wait before we we end i have to ask you so one of the things that we've been the ideas that we've been kicking around on the podcast is, um, you know, perhaps a wish that at least we ourselves knew, if not that a teacher could point it out to us. Areas of, of other sort of talents. I mean, Tom told us, you know, about his whole experience of becoming a playwright and realizing that right, that was right, right, that the right. acting thing really wasn't for him. And it, to me, that sounded like it was a very solid combination of how he felt about himself and how the faculty was reflecting him back to himself. But um, I personally didn't ever have the experience of even really considering, you know, playwriting, directing. And I'm just wondering, you know, if there's any thought behind that, if there was, um, I mean, was it just to keep people really on the acting program that it was all acting focused or did you at times pull people aside and say, you know, you'd be a really good director? Hmm. We did do that sometimes. I mean, there were, uh, you know, there were some students who who seemed to have that kind of eye and and tendency. And I I don't remember doing that personally, but I but I do remember uh, Rick Murphy occasionally doing that, maybe maybe Jim as well. And there were some people who, you know, who came to the acting program who then came back later to uh, to go go into the, the MFA directing program. Wow. Uh, okay. Scott Scott Illingworth, for example, oh, did that. Yeah. You know? Okay, um, right. Uh, and I think the other thing that began to happen is that as the theater arts program, the theater studies program, you know, uh, 
as that got richer and and um, and more filled out, there were uh, there were opportunities for the you know for the acting students to go over there and to and to take some classes mm -hmm. with the with in the theater arts program as well. And so people who were in, interested in writing their own monologues or maybe doing some you know some initial playwriting work could could go over and study with uh, Dean Corrin and Carlos Murillo and 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 do that at well. So there was more um, there was more overlap. I think as the as the school moved on, you know, mm -hmm. the, it, it was the the school was really quite a, a vastly different place when I left it than when when the two of you graduated. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, before we let you go, the last thing is just. Uh, as a professor, what did you make of the whole showcase endeavor? And did you think, I mean, I'll just say, we haven't talked to anybody who said, oh, a showcase was great. <laughs> Everybody has said, I picked a terrible monologue. I had a terrible costume. Nobody called me. I mean, except for, you know, the Judy Evanses of the world, but most people had a terrible <laughs> sh uh, sh uh, showcase experience. So I I'm curious what your thoughts about it were. Uh, boy, uh, the, I think the, you know, there was, there was certainly there was certainly an expectation of the students coming in that they would somehow get some sort of introduction to the, you know, to the profession. And so that's really what that, really what that was. Every other school or any other, the other main schools were doing it as well. So as, as far as the, you know, as far as TTS as a, you know, as a professional training program was concerned, not to do that would have, would have, would have been a, would have been a professional mistake. Um, uh, was it was it a was it effective in in, um, in 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 placing people in the profession? Not initially, you know. I mean, you would have that, you know. So I mean, so so you would go off to New York and you would do your you would you know you would do the showcase there and you talk to some agents and what would they say? They said, well, if you move to New York, give me a call and then we'll right. you know. Right. And that was the same with. Same with Los Angeles as well. However, in Chicago, you know, of course, some of the local agencies, you know, did you know did approach the, you know, students and and they would sign with, yeah. uh, you know, but but with the Chicago agencies, those were not exclusive, so it wasn't the same kind of kind of thing that you would find in in getting an agent in in uh, in New York or or Chicago, you know, um, it. Uh, I think it was probably all right to to uh, to have the students, uh, you know, show their stuff to the profession. I thought it was a, you know, although it, you know, in a practical way, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't. It was an introduction, but it certainly didn't didn't land anything necessarily. There was the one, there was the one famous case, right, of Kevin o, Kevin O'Connor. I don't know if you know who Kevin O'Connor was. He was a, he graduated, he was in the school when I first came there. I think he graduated maybe in 1986 or something. So he, uh, he goes to showcase, he writes his own material based on some guy he sees on, freaking out on, a, on the L some one day. <laughs> and um, it gets, somehow it's filmed. Somebody films it of it. It's sent off. And 
Francis Ford Coppola sees it, and uh, Coppola calls him in and uh, and auditions him, and then within a year he has a, a major part in Peggy Sue. You oh know, my, got married. Got married. Wow. Yeah. Wow. How cool. Yeah. So there's hope for everybody. There's hope, everybody. <laughs> One in a million, you know. There's no, there's, I have to say, I have to say for the showcase in Chicago, I got all my agents, I got television work. So yeah, that yeah. I think I think it's it's just a weird thing. This is just yeah. a weird business as well. But it's yeah. but it yeah. it's a tricky thing to go from you're yeah. an acting student in a conservatory to here's showbiz yeah, yeah. Here you are. good luck yeah. good yeah. luck exactly you know, i you know I, I had thought that um you know if we if we did our job well and i mean in, a, in an informal way i think we there is some some of that is that we would uh you know we would we would we would we would select students we would train them we would introduce them to the profession and in some ways, there would be some kind of maintenance for the for the students after graduation, you know, in the profession. That part of it never really got filled out very much. And it, and it, to my mind, it probably it probably should be, you know. Yeah, 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 you know? definitely. Well, we are out of time, so we have to stop. But this, okay. oh, I really valued having your perspective. Oh, I loved having you guys in class. And oh. I, and, and well, no, it's it's true. And I, I, I said this to to um, to uh, one of the last classes that I had, who was saying it was so great to have you learn so much. And I said, look, I said, I said, I think I learned, I think I learned more from you than you ever did from me. And so I, I think that that applies to you two gals as well. Oh, thank right. you, John Jenkins. Say hi, Nan. <laughs> yeah, please do and ask I'll, Nan I'll if she her, wants to be. I'll on. tell her that this was fun. I Survive Theatre School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks.